0: Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of experts, practitioners, and guests to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. I'm Michael Bode, a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter, and your host of today's podcast. I'm joined by fellow Tax Banter trainers, Leanne Hayes and Michael Mesner. Michael and Leanne, thank you for joining me on Tax Tax Yak. Today we're going to be discussing the tricky position many directors face when trying to apply the job keeper rules. In particular, can directors claim the jobkeeper payment as an employee? Even if they've paid themselves a wage in the past, can they still claim it? If they're an employee, they may get much more stimulus assistance than otherwise, so what gives? So, Michael, I understand you have a bee in your bonnet about the definition of an employee when we're talking about business participants in inverted commerce. What's your problem? Thank you very
1: much for um, this introduction, Michael, and thank you very much for taking some time to be on this podcast with me. And the same goes for Lee, obviously, whose opinion we highly appreciate. Look, we had a lot of discussions internally at Techspenter about who is actually an employee. And my personal um, point that I want to raise is just the legislative instrument for the JobKeeper, Section 121 a that says an individual is the eligible business participant for an entity for fortnight if the individual is not employed by the entity at any time in the fortnight. Now, if I read that, I can't help but think that our, all our small businesses out there that receive fringe benefits, maybe super as well, the directors, obviously, i refer to, and also um, trustees and just beneficiaries of the trust. So what constitutes employment? Are we potentially employed? What would we look out for? And what could be the penalties if we, get it, if we get it wrong? And I couldn't think of anyone better at this point in time to ask this question other than my friend Lee here.
2: Thanks, Michael. Um, yes, I find it interesting that they talk about not being employed. And the examples that you gave were the FBT Act, being an employee under the FBT Act and being an employee for superannuation. So I guess my first concern when I think about this space is that both of those particular provisions deem, in certain circumstances, these company directors and these sort of participants to be an employee, which means we've not really actually had to go down to actually thinking about whether they've been employed we've almost just accepted that they are now that's not to say that they're not employees and i'm sure you're going to go through some some case law that talks about this employment relationship but it's a question of fact and so i'm a little bit cautious i think just saying categorically you get a fringe benefit we're paying super you're an employee
1: Thank you very much, Lee. I mean, Michael, share your thoughts with me, but just going back to the basics here, we've all been in public practice. What do we usually see out there? there? Small, medium enterprise. We have a company director who might be the shareholder, might not be the shareholder directly, maybe through a um, family trust, whatever gifts, or if you're operating out of a trust, we just have those beneficiaries who for various reasons, tax reasons, obviously, as well as super guarantee reasons might not be inclined to pay themselves a wage ordinarily. What is our baseline case here? Who do we usually refer to as an employee? In that aspect thinking about our personal services businesses and just our small businesses out there what have you observed in the past what do they usually pay themselves what's their remuneration mix and would you think they're actually an employee
0: well the main thing i'd say is that in the past i don't think there's been much pressure on this question there is for employee rights, etc. When we're talking about a director or a, or, a, or a beneficiary or a partner, they're able to control what's going on. So they can almost define what they want to be. So when we're advising people in the past, we were really not feeling constrained. We're going, do you want to consider yourself an employee? What's the best result here? And then you structure the arrangement around, around that. So really it was up to the employee to choose um, and not, necessarily tested by the actual definition of whether they were an employee or not and i think that's a reflection of the fact that it is the same person we're talking about so you can control yourself and it's almost a nonsense to be discussing are you controlled um in the normal sense of the term of of a master servant arrangement so Um, I think we're in new territory here when we're talking about um, the definition of employee and needing to be considered an employee for the purpose of of this, whereby you are also the controller. Um, In the past, we only had employees who wanted to be considered an employee because they wanted rights under their employment um, (laughs) um, arrangement under a a separate employer. So that's what their claim was.
2: And I think even the case law recently has shifted from that master-servant relationship anyway. Um, Obviously, you see a lot of particularly professional people like ourselves, very, very little direct control from the employers. So you sort of don't necessarily need to look at control. But again, it's that question of fact, isn't it? And like you said, it's about sort of what's worked for us. And I think with the JobKeeper, we know that the business participant can get in. It's whether they get in under Division 2 or Division 3. But I guess if we put them in under Division 2, that then has the ramifications for that cash flow boost because they're now suddenly going to have to be paid the JobKeeper rather than it being retained in the entity. And then of course, there's the withholding that might trigger that. Now,
1: let me ask you guys a question, and there's two really interesting items that you raised here. First, Michael, you said in the past we just didn't turn our attention to whether we are, in fact, an employee or not. Why do you guys think that's the case? Is that just because, let's be realistic, the small business, the entrepreneur doesn't care? It's because, hey, whatever my accountant tells me I'm doing, or is that just, in your opinion, because nobody really was too bothered about it. It just worked. We could claim our deductions and our fringe benefits where we wanted to, and therefore we just went the path of least resistance and the ATO was reasonable at that point in time. What do you think? Which one is the reasoning? Exactly.
0: Up? It's because there was no risk. Um, if you are giving yourself a, a fringe benefit, come at me ATO, prove me wrong, prove me not to be an employee. And I just don't think that the ATO was employing much resources in that regard. Um, just because it would be so difficult for them to prove that they're not an employee and for what gain <coughs> to be considering something to mm. be, uh, you know, not a fringe benefit, mm. whether it's inside Division 7A or whether it's a fringe benefit or not, it just didn't really matter that much. Mm. It was just a little bit of um, uh, milking, I guess you could say, that was, was being engaged by directors and which, which being able to choose which way they wanted to go in terms of which the best tax outcome was. Mm.
2: And to be fair, a lot of the ATO advice allows that outcome. You read um, the ruling TR-2001-10 on salary sacrifice arrangements, they look for personal services and they say, well, if you want to do it, we'll consider it to be effective. Again, it's kind of almost just saying, company director, we'll just deem you to be an employee if, if that's the road you want to go down.
1: That's rightly. I mean, look, in the Super Guarantee Administration Act, we obviously have a um, definition of common law employee, and that's our starting point. And then we have our extended definition of an employee, but that's only for the Super Guarantee act purposes right it doesn't apply uh, apply to our general employment law where we say also a director amongst other people like sports persons musicians artists etc are deemed automatically to be employees and we're obviously happy that that definition applies to, to super guarantee administration act only but then again where's the overlap with our common law because correct me if i'm wrong um this term employed in this case it's not a defined term it
0: just takes its ordinary meaning yeah, that's right. Hmm. So, Michael, tell me, what are, exactly are you worried about? Are we worried that if you would claim as a business participant that the ATO is going to come along and say to you, you're not allowed to claim this, you should have been claiming as an employee because you're an employee and bad like it, if you didn't pay yourself the, the payment, if you didn't satisfy the payment condition, I'm sorry, you, you're therefore not eligible for anything. Do you really think that's a risk?
1: I, I don't think that's my primary concern here. Um, and, and yes, I understand that uh, a lot of um, practitioners out there say, look, we, we just want to go to path of least resistance here and just make ourselves an eligible business participant because obviously what would happen if we treat ourselves like employees? Well, we might not currently be registered for pay so you go withholding. If we do that now, well, then we might trigger the cash flow boost. But there's another important one out there, feedback I've gotten from my groups all the time. And that was the classic example, of our Medico. They are just operating out of their personal services entity, a company of which they are director of or otherwise a trust, of which they are beneficiary, and a director of the trustee company usually. And they say, well, yeah, we're carrying on our own business. We're PSB usually operated out of this personal services entity. But importantly, we are also employed with Queensland Health or New South Wales Health. Obviously, those are considered to be um, government entities or otherwise excluded entities. Um, and, and therefore, they're not eligible for the JobKeeper. And um, there's no JobKeeper coming their way, no entitlement for that employee of queensland health for example however that also means because we are otherwise employed we are now not able to claim the JobKeeper in our own business. Why? Because we have other employment. Now, if we were an employee under Division 2 in our own business, that makes our own business eligible to receive the JobKeeper. And we have another issue here as an eligible business participant because we're excluded if we are employed, otherwise employed by another entity during the fortnight under the legislation. So if we are then employed with Queensland Health, well, then we can't get the JobKeeper as an eligible business participant in our business here. And though their billings might be down by a significant degree. I've heard about a vascular surgeon in Sydney and his billings actually from his private practice were down by 85%. So clearly they would sh- or should potentially have an entitlement towards the JobKeeper. So we can get around this limitation by making them an employee.
0: Mm. So it sounds to me like you're you're focusing on those that are unable to access it because of the fact that they're ineligible as a business participant for one reason or other, that might be completely understandable. I guess the other example of that is we've seen this discussed a few times is, is different business structures, complex business structures that might deny the access to the business participant. So Leanne, can you think of any other circumstances where this problem might arise?
2: Well, it could arise, I guess, if we've got two eligible business participants. Of course, the legislation, these rules only allow a business to have one eligible business participant that can get the JobKeeper. But if they're the ones that are salary sacrificing the car, for example, and we argue they're an employee, or they may in fact be an employee, then both these business participants, employees, getting under division two and they both can access the job keeper. So I think it could just be a, a situation of, of just the number of people that can access it.
0: These sound like very common scenarios. So there must be a lot of people out there that are stuck in exactly the situation.
1: That's right. Oh, and that's absolutely. my main concern.
0: Yeah
2: there's a lot of debate going on out there about, about what it is and you certainly read the cases and I think the problem is most of these cases looking at whether you're an employee or not, these company directors, whether they're an employee or not, it's actually fair work. So you actually end up in, in those rules because you know, tax It's not really as big an issue up until this point because we've just got deeming rules that say, oh, well, if you're not actually an employee, we're just going to treat you as one for super or for FBT or whatever it is.
1: And that's a really good comment, Lee. And I just want to jump in here and give my five cents worth of knowledge because I agreed with your position a couple of days ago. I found most of my references in fair work law. And when I refer to fair work, work law, um, there, there's a couple of cases out there, for example, central property groups and the likes. And and that they, those key cases really told us that a director who is not a non-executive director is an employee a non-executive director here is obviously the kind who gets paid a small director's fee rocks up to the board meetings has the beef pies and the cake and votes yes and no and that's about it but again we have to go back to our small businesses here and i don't agree that that's what our directors are our directors are executive directors And if you ever think about it, whether they're a vascular surgeon or vending machine operator, what governs their director relationship? And obviously the same thing translates again to our trustees. For our directors, we refer to the contract between the director and the company, and that is the Corporations Act and it's the company constitution. That outlines our director's duties. Now, I dare to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to say that none of our clients' company constitutions here have any requirement for a director to be actually chopping off legs, stitching up blood vessels, taking inventory in a vending machine, stocking up the van, driving out there, stocking the vending machine, repairing the vending machine and the likes. And the same could obviously be said for a trustee. There's usually nothing in a trustee that says the trustee of the vending machine trading trust has to restock the machines on an ongoing basis. So I for this argue, for this reason, argue that there's something else other than our director's duties here. And then this is not covered by our activity as a director. So if it's not the activity as a director, what is it possibly? And that's where I'm gonna refer to TR 2010-1, paragraph 249, and I hope you allow me to read this out. The ATO in a binding ruling here says, consequently, it will be obvious that a person is engaged in an employment activity when they are physically carrying out the obligations and duties of the job or work. And this is the fact I'm referring to here, stocking the vending machine, amputating legs, stitching up blood vessels. That is literally, as the commissioner describes it, an employment activity because they're physically carrying it out.
0: This ruling is talking about superannuation guarantee. So what they're saying there is that these guys should be considered an employee for the purposes of superannuation guarantee. So they're trying to ensure that super is paid. So they have an agenda there. So they want to find an employee in this circumstance. Might they change their position if the shoe was on the other foot and it was the other way around? They're actually eligible for a significant grant by being considered an employee. I know that it should be an immutable principle, but perhaps the view, the perspective could could achieve a different result. I hear you, Michael, mm.
1: but I just want to continue that right in this paragraph two nine, further down, it actually says a common law employee will be engaged in the activity while they remote, remain employed. It's a question of fact here. And let's be clear again. I mean, it, it is still not our director's duties. Employment takes its meaning under common law. So again, what is that activity of restocking the vending machine here or, or stitching up some blood vessels? I don't think it's a director's duty. So what is it then?
0: So what do the courts say, Michael? What do we think that the courts might interpret this position as? Well,
1: I had a look at um, Kelly versus the commissioner and also at um, Williams J in the Federal Commission of Taxation versus Dixon 1952. And there were some clear guidelines here on Ordinary income cases, employment income cases. So we're talking proper tax law here. And I read out in the definition of income from personal exertion, the expression allowances and gratuities received in the capacity of employee or in relation to any services rendered. Well, and I cut it short now, but they are effectively employment. Okay. Um, so from that kind, from that angle, I, I would still argue that the common law here applies, and they are employees. Lee, what what is your opinion?
2: Look, I think there's no doubt that many of these relationships are employment relationships. I would just be concerned about relying on the fact that I get a salary sacrifice. 100% of my income is salary sacrifice. I'm dealing with it in FBT, therefore I'm an an employee. I guess that's my concern. I, I agree. I think in our client base, I think the majority of people probably do have employment relationships. I think the majority of these directors probably are. So if I was applying for JobKeeper, And I had my workforce there, I had employees, and I had myself and my spouse both working as directors in the business. I would all put it through as employees. That's absolutely what I would do. I would do it under division two. If it was just me and my spouse, no other employees, never registered for PAYG withholding, I'm not quite sure I would be brave enough to go and suddenly register as an employee, suddenly go and sign up for PAYG withholding, and then start paying myself the job keeper fifteen hundred dollars per fortnight thereby
1: triggering a $10,000 cash flow boost. Lee, but this is important, right? You said the magic words here. (laughs) I would not be brave enough. And this is what it's all about. It's not about how brave Mm. you are. It's about getting the law (laughs) right. And this is why I'm so (laughs) upset about this. Now, most of you out there listening to us will probably think, oh my God, just come to a conclusion. But this is what it all hinges on. What does the law say? And um, Michael, you you have had a range of legal studies and Lee, you you have looked at tax law for years. How strict do you think the application of the law will need to be here? What do you think the ATO is gonna do? Lee? what what, what are your thoughts?
2: Look, I actually do think the ATO is gonna be fairly gentle in this space. Um, I think for just JobKeeper, and I think if it was just, as I said, the case of two people getting JobKeeper versus one, I'm not quite sure the tax office is going to follow that. I suddenly start getting $10,000 boosts because of the way I've chosen to register for JobKeeper, I guess they, they, they would look. Um, one of the things they said in their arrangements dealing with schemes for cash flow boost is they may then look and see what your arrangements have been in the past and then contemplate perhaps whether they have been dealt with effectively. The reality is, though, I would have done that with FBT. So uh, I just don't know. And I know that's not what you want. You want an answer. And I really like sitting on my fence here. It's lovely.
1: Hang on, hang on. I'm, I'm going to follow up right on this because you talk about your integrity provision in the cash flow boost. And let's remember that integrity provision says that you are, in, 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 that, that you hit that integrity provision if you're entering into a scheme with the intention of either creating an entitlement or increasing your entitlement to the cash flow boost. And that has to be your sole or dominant purpose. Now I'm gonna counter argue here. Well, clearly, probably not my sole purpose, but my dominant purpose, more than 50%, which rules out the integrity provision here under the cash flow boost. My dominant purpose is not to get the cash flow boost, but to get the JobKeeper in the first place and also to obviously apply the law correctly because we can't Absolutely. be an eligible business participant if we are also an employee of the entity in the fortnight. So, for that reason, I'd say the cash flow boost integrity provision should not apply in this case. What do you guys think? I agree
2: with you, it should not apply i'm not quite sure when the tax office is sitting there doing their little data match that they're going to be able to read through that when they suddenly see that i've registered for pyg withholding and i've got an entitlement so i just think that if you go down that path there's a very big amount of preparation you need to have to please explain to the tax office down the track
0: i think it's interesting that the cash flow boost is fractionally larger than the job keeper package of benefit and I wonder whether you would mm. be arguable that the $20,000, which would be slightly more, would potentially be considered by a reasonable person to be the dominant purpose when the other benefit was only about eighteen. Oh, what do you say to that one, Michael? Sorry, sorry. right away my alarm bells start ringing here because <laughs> we
1: need to look at tax. While the cash flow boost is non-accessible, non-exempt income, i.e. this $20,000 non-accessible, non-exempt income, the JobKeeper, is an accessible subsidy under 1510, which means that even at a 27.5% tax rate, the JobKeeper will still be less than your cash flow boost usually. Always, yes, yeah. almost yes, yeah. almost. Mm. Mm. I have to correct myself here actually thinking about it. If we have a lot of employees with a lot of withholding, well, then arguably your cash flow boost could be large. So um, your, your, sorry, your um, JobKeeper payment could be somewhat larger if you have a lot of employees but we're yeah, talking but about small business exactly yeah just the business
0: participants yeah yeah i think that's probably another another scenario that might make you feel a lot more comfortable and leanne oh, alluded, alluded to this was was if you've got a whole bunch of employees and you were a drop in the pond you're probably not going to from a detection risk perspective at least you're not going to show up as much um, and I guess from the benefit of the job, from from the benefit of the cash flow boost, I should say, uh, that benefit, if that benefit is removed for some reason, then obviously you're going to be feeling in a lot safer position. I don't think the ATO is going to be terribly concerned about whether you're getting the 1500 bucks as a business participant or whether you're getting it as an employee. And when, when you read the ATO community discussions and ATO guidance, et cetera, they're very happy with with employee, with, with directors being considered to be employees if they were previously paid a POIGW amount. So, mm. I mean, their attitude is, is if you've previously been part of the PYGW si- system, then you're an employee and therefore carry on, you're an employee. If, if not, then you're an eligible business participant. They haven't considered circumstances like the car being packaged uh, and people... Yeah. that that may actually take a more, uh, a different position to the ATO in the the fact that they're saying, well, hang on, okay, if I'm not um, uh, eligible as a business participant, can I? And the ATO, I don't think has definitively answered this in any of their commentary.
1: No. I'll I'll take it one step further though. So let's say you go down the path of the eligible business participant. And then for whatever reason, you get pulled up for a random audit, even though I think the risk is lower potentially. But again, we have nothing to hide. We have good work papers. We have put down, we have a reasonably arguable position. We have our case law on hand. And the ATO comes along and says, oh, so what you're saying is you are an eligible business participant. So clearly for that reason, you were not employed by that entity during the fortnight. Then why did you give yourself that exempt fringe benefit which you're not entitled to because you're not an employee that's what you're saying
2: no but i think you are entitled to it because the sbt act will treat you as an employee and being treated as an employee is quite different to actually being one
1: why does think it, think it treat us,
2: us as an
1: employee yeah sorry why does it treat us as an employee i i actually somewhat agree or quite strongly agree with you lee but tell us why mm-hmm. tell our listeners why um, that's the case <laughs>
2: Now I have to find the relevant provisions of the um, uh, in, relate, in the FBT Act. It actually defines employment as also relating to um, the holding of an office, etc. Um, yeah, so definition of employment says in relation to a person means the holding of any office or appointment, provision of functions, the engaging of any work, etc. Um, and that will result in the person being treated as an employee. So I think it just, that sort of the the link there.
1: I've paraphrased a little bit. Thank you, Lee. And and this is important because it is a very wide approach. It it captures a lot of activities, which obviously the word in itself, you need to be actively engaged or actively involved in the business. That's a term from the JobKeeper legislation, which pretty much fits right into that description you just gave us.
2: Yeah, and I think it's current employee as well that gets us there. So there's a couple of things. Obviously, to get a fringe benefit, you need to be employed, but you also need to be um, – the benefit Benefit needs to be in respect of that employment. So there is a, a little bit more than just deeming, but certainly um, – so Leanne yeah. feels
0: fairly comfortable that we're not going to lose our fringe benefit exempt treatment. No. Um, and so it throws that back to Michael Mesner. I throw back another one. and say, So if, if we go along and say if, if we consider to be an employee – We think we're considered to be an employee and then we start paying ourselves wages. We're a sole director. We've got no other employees at all and we pay ourselves our wage in June. And then the ATO comes along and says, well, actually, you weren't an employee back on the 1st of March. You've started paying yourself a wage and we consider you to have started employment relationship as of that date of that first start of that first payment. So as of 30th of March, when you started all this, you actually are no longer going to be eligible uh, as a business participant because you became an employee then. And you are no longer eligible, you were never eligible as an employee because you were not an employee on the 1st of March. So therefore you can't get it under either. There's a doomsday scenario for you. It is a
1: doomsday scenario, but again, it's about the intention of both entities, the employer and the employee. And just that we change the the way and shape our remuneration takes doesn't mean that um, we we have ceased or started an employment relationship. I mean, I'm referring here to Hochstrasser versus Mays, 1958, uh, a Queen's bench case. And it basically says that um, in in a scenario where um, money is not paid to employees in their capacity as employees and they work for no consideration other than their services um, but they're paid under separate collateral contact as entered in between them and the employer, Um, that is still employment and that's important because there is something coming our way in lieu of that salary, Um, maybe a trust distribution at the end, maybe a dividend, who knows. But the important thing is that we have to remember these are extraordinary times. We are all uncertain about how our business is going to perform in the next, not even three months, maybe even only in the next month. Um, what is our cash flow going to look like? And if then the employee says, Hang on, employer, I'm happy to get my trust distribution at the end or my dividend, whatever it is, but right now I need to put food on the table for my children. I need to have certainty. And that's why I want a fixed wage and also. I want to manage my cash flow. I don't want to deal with instalments. There's just too much risk in it. Please do put me on salaries and wages with pay you go withholding to allow me to do my budgeting. And I think given the current economic circumstances, that is not that unreasonable a
2: request. Yeah, but the problem is I think you've done that today and today is not the 1st of March.
1: Well, it was my intention on the 1st of March. The fact that I do it today, look, again, what was my intention on the 1st of March? Anything I do today, obviously only documents that, right? I mean, I am aware that we need to have met the wage condition if we want to deem ourselves an employee Um, in the first two JobKeeper fortnights. We had until the 10th of May in order to do that. But we would hope, and and, and Mm. most of our clients out there, if they've got a good accountant, which our loyal listeners are, they would have taken care of all of that by the 10th of May, no doubt. Hmm. perhaps <laughs> so guys let me ask you then where are we with this how are we going to prepare for any ato action what's our preferred cause of action where do we go if we need further assistance what do we look out for
0: well the first thing i think we haven't discussed is is, is that the, the pcg on uh the integrity provisions and the outcome of that was, of course, that if you are genuinely suffering from this, then we're not more likely to look at you hard. If you genuinely have third party employees that have been maintained as a result of this payment, then we're not going to look at you. So I think that means that those that actually have genuine employees in their organisation are going to feel a lot more comfortable and those that have genuinely suffered and can show a genuine re- reduction in their turnover or, or suffering in, in some way, shape or form, uh, been affected adversely, I guess you could say. I, I think they will be a lot more comfortable. Uh, so I, I think you'd agree with that one, Michael. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Safety numbers, that's
1: what I call it. And if you have other employees, the ATO cannot possibly pick you up. And, and so just to, to add this there actually, um, Michael, we spoke obviously a lot of offline about this topic and we have to be clear to our listeners here we've got two elements of risk here number one is our compliance risk that we applied the law incorrectly we didn't have a reasonable reasonably arguable position but the other big factor that's in play here and i actually don't deem our compliance risk that high it's at a manageable level but the other problem here is really our detection risk and that is sky high in my
0: opinion agreed So Leanne, what would you do? You're a sole director, (laughs) you're sitting there, Um, if you had a a packaged car but you've never paid yourself a wage, you're sitting here right now, you're deciding, what are you going to do for June? Are you going to be actually paying yourself and getting your $10,000 and and then (laughs) $20,000? Tax-free, $20,000. And, and then also <laughs> going back and, and, and receiving this. <clears throat> Obviously, our payment condition can't be met for the, uh, for the up until the 8th of May, but you can always start now with a JobKeeper. What would you do?
2: No. I, and yeah, absolutely. Look, I, I agree. I think the, the compliance risk with JobKeeper is really low. I actually don't know that the tax office is going to split hairs whether you enrol in Division 2 or Division 3. I think the risk is the cash flow boost. And I think that if you go down the path of registering as an employee, so then you register for your POIG withholding and um, start paying yourself a wage. I agree. I really think that there's a vast majority of the cases that probably is an employment relationship. It's just exactly that, the, the detection risk and I think the detection risk is, is really high there. Um, so I guess it just depends how risk adverse you are and how prepared you are to, to perhaps mount those arguments to the tax office because I think there is a very, very high detection risk. I think
0: I'm still on my fence. <laughs> Would you do the same thing, Michael? It's a
1: tough question. As a registered tax agent, um, the heart obviously says, absolutely, go for gold, go big or go home. At the same time, I'm aware you need to manage that risk in your practice. Um Look, I I see the both of you really here as my senior leaders and I do trust your opinion, but I feel strongly about this. I really do. Just the fact that we did apply for the JobKeeper, that means our dominant purpose, let alone our sole purpose, is not to create an entitlement under the cash flow boost. That's my firm opinion. The other thing is here that we have a couple of legal cases, which we mentioned today, um, that just set us precedents, And also we have to be legal positivists here. The idea why our legislators deem a director or a trustee, we haven't mentioned slate bloodstock either, so the same logic pretty much applies for a trustee. Um, why they deem them to be um, an employee is because they say, look, we're not, we're not messing about here. You are an employee if you do activities like that. So what would I do? I would just maintain proper work papers. I would document everything in my new detail, the reasoning why I derived that outcome. I would argue, therefore, I have a reasonably arguable position. That means I'm somewhat legally protected as a practitioner. And if I'm really concerned um, that I have exposure here, um, obviously I would disclose this to my client, give them an option. What do you want to do? Give them all the information. But importantly, I'd probably also get a second opinion. That's really important. Mm. Get a second opinion from another registered tax agent or from a lawyer. And obviously our colleagues here at Web Martin Consulting are always happy to help out. But the idea is if you get a second opinion, you as a registered tax agent are legally protected yourself. You have gotten that advice from another agent and therefore you're off the hook. And that I think in this case is a very powerful proposition because how many clients do you have who are subject to the JobKeeper and potentially the cash flow boost as a result? The answer is a lot of them. You have generated the fees. And then if you just get that second opinion from another accountant, then you buy that literally as an insurance policy. Funny enough, a couple of my groups have said to me also we make sure we we offer our clients audit shield, just be careful on that front because it turns out audit shield is actually not covering JobKeeper and for that reason, (laughs) there's no point telling our clients maybe buy this to protect yourselves if there's no coverage here. But yeah, do your homework and I'd be bold and and argue it and see how it goes with the ATO And, and just my final comment on this pretty much for now is just that, do you really think the ATO would rock up and say no? No, we. You have to pay back the job keeper. We will issue penalties. Where a small business went to their accountant, the accountant had a reasonably arguable position. And then there might be the newspaper headline, small business who went to their accountant turned turned insolvent by the ATO because of unclear guidelines in the JobKeeper legislation. The ATO wouldn't want to do this. And they'd probably say, look, you did your homework. We don't quite agree with you, but let's just move on because this is a one-off item, right? We're not gonna to have to cash flow boost every year now going forward. And for that reason, I think they just move on if you've done your homework here.
0: So we have Michael that'd do it, and Leanne who wouldn't. Casting vote. <laughs> and I think, and I think I've always been expressing my view that I'd be very nervous about changing my wages, and, and which making me eligible for the for the for the boost. Um, but uh, yeah, for my mind, I, I think I think the truth is often in the middle, or we will never know the truth in this one. Uh, at least it'll take a long time. But uh, if you have a genuine reduction in your turnover, you are genuinely suffering, uh, and you can, you could stand up in, in in the tribunal and bang your fist on the table and demand that you, you there was good reason for you to be eligible, uh, and I think that's more more to the point when you were if you were actually asked by an ATO auditor, if that was your genuine position and you could support that, then I think you're going to have a lot more. Uh, leeway to be able to do what you do the the other option i guess we haven't mentioned is is going in a la michael mesner just going for gold and claiming the whole lot paying yourself the wage getting your boost but then also going back to the ato and communicating with them the boost is a payment that is happens automatically right so you're not applying for it it happens to you inadvertently so if you can then go back to the ato and say hey guys i'm not sure that i'm eligible for this um, and just raising awareness of that and making some of the points that you're making, some of the concerns, then I think you're going to be finding yourself in a lot of, in a much better place in, in respect of any later penalties, at least. Um, and, and, and then engaging honestly with the ATO. And that might mean that your boost is removed, but at least you'll, be, you'll get the JobKeeper payment. Um, so I think engaging with the ATO would be, would be a good move in, in the circumstance that you're unsure and you want to be able to sleep at night.
2: <laughs>
0: any final comments, Lee?
2: No, I think we've covered it all. That's been good.
0: Excellent. And Michael... Are you a happy man? Is your bee still in your bonnet? It always is.
1: You know, I'm passionate. And I think that's what uh, being a trainer is all about, taking all points into consideration and then just uh, coming to uh, an opinion and working with your groups really to work out what, what suits them best. So absolutely passionate to discuss this. And this goes for any listener. Please do get in touch with us um, through our normal um, contact channels, which are on our website, if you would like to discuss this further with us.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. These are all the discussions we're having in our JobKeeper special topics, etc. Uh, and uh, lo- we look forward to hearing more information about you as to how this all turns out, because it'll be very interesting to see how this unfolds.
1: Thanks everyone for joining us. Now, before I let you go, um, we have a bit of a text banter quiz at the end of uh, this podcast just to see who goes home with bragging rights. I've prepared this here to surprise my colleagues. I did tell them about it. They don't know what the questions are going to be about. So are you ready to be quizzed on four questions? This is all about bragging rights. I'm bracing myself. All right. (laughs) Very good. All right,
0: so the
1: first question, who's happy to go first? Is that Michael Bode or Lee?
0: I'll put my hand up for the lamb for the slaughter. Go for it, Michael. The first one is a pretty (laughs) difficult question. Um, Our
1: tax law is very, very complex as we all know. An example of that is that we have many different types of excise categories when it comes to the taxation of alcohol. How many different excise categories do we have?
0: I was not expecting that question. I should know, and I should better work backwards from those that I've worked, I've purchased over the bar. However, <laughs> how many different excise categories? I thought there was only two, but I'm 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 feeling I'm incredibly wrong here. I, I'm based on some. Sar- I reckon
2: there was a case, or there was some sort of government um review or something of this recently so i feel like i should know the answer because i feel like it was in the update and so then you michael are forgiven for that but i'm not <laughs> but i can't remember i'm gonna it was it was huge like it was in the hundreds if i had to guess
1: that's, that's right. You're, you're, well, you're still a bit awfully, but that's exactly it. So we actually um, presented that as part of our managing a risky business um, special topic about one and a half that's years right. ago. That's it. And it turns out we do have two different taxation systems to tax alcohol in Australia. So Michael Bote, you were absolutely correct on that. However, within those two taxation systems, we differentiate based on the alcohol type the concentration of the alcohol, the commercial use, and the container size, which means we actually have a total of sixteen, sixteen, one six different categories of excise at this point in time. So that is a point.
0: Full. at the Queenslander question.
1: Yeah, it is a Queenslander question. That's right. So I can't award a point at this point in time. Having said that, we'll go to our second question, and that goes to Lee by default now. Lee... Div 7A changes are still somewhere on the horizon, we we assume at this point in time. Which year was a review first commissioned into Division 7A for upcoming changes that we're still waiting for?
2: Hmm, given I literally presented this last week, I should maybe... <laughs> 2012 jumped out in my mind to start off with, but might change it to 14, I don't know.
1: Very goodly. It was indeed 2012. We're talking about the 18th of May 2012. And um, here we are eight years later and we're still waiting for draft That's legislation. Right. So who knows what's going to happen regarding Div 7a. This is, brings us back to our second last question. That goes to Michael again. Michael, who was the Assistant Treasurer that actually commissioned that review into Division 7a?
0: Why, don't, why is Leanne getting the easy questions and I'm getting the hard <laughs> ones? The assistant treasurer at that time. So well, I, I, it's, wait, 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 it must be Wayne Swan's assistant, right? Is that right. what we're talking about? That's right. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit I don't know. I don't know who that was. Lee, any thoughts? No, no, I'm not going not to jump in. The
1: slides <laughs> then, Assistant Treasurer. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> added that into our slides. It yes. was indeed David Bretori. <laughs> Good attempt from both of you. So Lee is still leading one zero. Which brings us to our last question. And the last question is, probably an easy one for us since we're text trainers. What is going to be the text rate? For an individual taxpayer in the 2025 financial year, on income that is up to 180,000, once we're over the 90 percent margin rate here, what will be our tax rate? I just
2: don't know.
1: <laughs> Michael, time I'm to redeem, yourso- redeem yourself. Redeem yourself. Thirty, you say, Michael? No, I copy Michael. Cool. I'm saying thirty. It is gonna be thirty percent, obviously plus Medicare, provided our income tax cuts still go ahead. Very good guys. I'd call this a proper draw. Thank you very much for taking part in this quiz. And I hope everyone on the line had a bit of fun thinking about those as well. If indeed you had four out of four on this one, get in touch with us. We might need another tax trainer.
0: Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Leanne, and thank you, everybody out there, and hope you enjoyed that and learned something and look forward to hearing you again. Thanks for listening to this episode of TaxYak. I've been chatting with fellow Tax Banter trainers, Michael Mesner and Leanne Hayes. If you'd like to connect with us on social media, you can find Tax Banter on LinkedIn and Twitter. Let us know your take on episodes or suggest future topics or guests. You can also get us get us on the uh, Taxiak Team on email at podcast at and find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au slash banter dash blog. If you're enjoying our podcast, please take a moment to rate and write a review for the show wherever you are. It'll help improve the profile of the show and we look forward to hearing any of your thoughts. We look forward to joining us next time.